I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. This is the third world builder we've had in this series. Uh, Jimmy Wales was here almost a year ago uh, talking about how Wikipedia came together uh, and basically is becoming uh, matched with the world in its scale and its content. And then we had uh, a combination of Will Wright and Brian Eno uh, down at the Herbst Theater, becoming friends in front of that audience, many of whom are probably here tonight. And they're uh, building Spore, where not only the users are making it, but the uh, programs themselves are generative, both for the graphical elements and the, the, the dynamically systematic uh, functioning of it, much like SimCity, only richer. And also the music, that's what Brian is bringing to it. And Brian's approach on that, uh, just to mention a thing that came up afterwards, is he wants the music instruments, which you use as a user in Spore, to be so good that people will get the program just for the musical instruments. That's the kind of thing that happens in these worlds that are built. It's happening in Second Life. Um, it's that wonderful situation where the creator himself or herself gets to be surprised by what the creation does once it's occupied by a lot of creative people. But there's also a first creator, and tonight we have one of them, Philip Rosedale. Well, hello everybody. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, I am Philip Rosedale, otherwise known as, or also known as, Philip Linden. That's me. In Second Life. And uh, what uh, what Stuart asked me to talk about here tonight to the best of my abilities, and what I'll try to do is tell you something about Second Life and about what it tells us about the real world. You know, what have we, what have I, what have we collectively learned from Second Life so far about uh, the real world or about ourselves? And so I thought I would do a, uh, let me see here, I may have to, I'm in this odd yogi position. Okay, wait a minute, there we go. Actually, I'm in this, let's see here. I'm sitting down, you see, that's... Somebody had me sitting. There are a lot of sounds in Second Life. You always take your chances when you walk away from the screen there for that amount of time. I don't know why I'm sitting. Isn't that interesting? All the Second Lifers out there are like, that is, that is so strange. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start up here again. Um, 
I've got a, I've got a story here in, in three parts. And then what I wanted to do was uh, take some questions and get everybody to direct me a little bit in terms of what you want to see and what we can talk about. I wrote some notes down. I, I wrote them down with a pen today, and then I uploaded them into Second Life, and then I stuck them on a piece of paper here, and uh, I'm holding it in my avatar's hand. So we can take a look. So instead of PowerPoint, we'll just do this. So, so there we go. I'll keep referring back to that. But I thought we'd do three things. Uh, I thought I'd kind of tell you about the, the yin of digitizing everything, which is the world around you. And then I would tell you, uh, so I'll spend a little time on that. And then I thought I'd spend some time on the effect it has on us. So digitizing the world means that you digitize the space and then you digitize yourself. And I think from the standpoint of discussion, those two things are different enough that they're sort of two different parts and thoughts here. And then finally, uh, my thoughts on what Second Life tells us about the future and what's to come. I guess that's the, that's the hardest part. But uh, I thought I'd start with this issue of digitizing everything. You know, we uh, have been digitizing things pretty aggressively for the last couple of decades, uh, audio and video. In general, when we, when we digitize things, we generally do it because it makes them easier to uh, manipulate, easier to share, easier to modify. We've seen that happen with media. And so Second Life, in a way, asks the really big question, well, do we have enough computing power to just go all the way, rather than you know, starting with these little things like media, and just digitize everything, digitize the whole world? And so starting about seven years ago, that's what we, Linden Lab, started trying to do. We started writing a lot of software to try and digitize the whole world, you know, why would you do that? Why would you digitize everything? Well, the world, as the physical place that we as thinking people are embedded in, was here before us. Physics, uh, in some sense, made us. You can see all this IMing, by the way. This is all people talking to me. Let's see, can I say I'm busy? We had a terrible, for those who are in Second Life in here, we had a terrible upgrade yesterday, so you'll see all the chatter here in the background. How many people in the room, like, have a Second Life account? That's really cool. So we're, we're getting there. Um, so the, the world, the physical world, was here before us, and we, as, as thinking people, can obviously imagine it a lot better. We, uh, ideas like who owns what are things that are not written into the basic atomic physics of the world. The world works in a way that doesn't say who owns things. The world works uh, in ways that we can easily imagine improving on. And so I think that was a lot of the genesis of Second Life, at least for me, was this question of, well, you know, can we take a computer or a lot of computers and try and simulate the whole world? And so how would we do that? So that, uh, 
Uh, so I'll try to tell you just at a high level so you can kind of imagine the capabilities here, how we actually did that, right? So digital atomics, what did we do? So uh, the world is made of atoms. Atoms are too small to simulate with a computer nowadays. And so we imagined from the start that we were going to do something where, uh, just like you see us now, I'm going to fly here. Everyone can fly, of course, in Second Life. Why not? Um, you know, I'm flying around a little island here in Second Life, and this island is actually being simulated on one computer. Uh, it's being simulated on one server machine. So we had this question of, well, how can we, uh, how can we simulate a world that is interesting enough uh, for us to be willing to engage in and do things in, but not too complicated for us uh, so that we, uh, so that the computers would actually be able to simulate it. And so what we did, and I'll, I'll play around a little bit and show this off, was we built a kind of an atomic system. We said that all the pieces of this world, like this little chunk of that tower bar over there, each one of these little pieces would be our atoms. And so we would sort of build things like Legos. We would... Uh, we would build this whole world in place uh, out of using atoms that were, oh, about this big. So we'd kind of, we'd start with a, a basic, uh, you know, cube in this case. This is, so this is the atom in Second Life. That's the sound of creation, isn't that great? <laughs> I love that. Takes a second to load. So, th so this is an atom, so what can I do with it? Let me show you that because it's kind of fun. Now, part of what's really fun here uh, is that all, all of what I'm doing here I can do with other people. I figured I'll show you that, and I'll, I'll show you that at the end, but it's really crazy. The, the, the incredible thing here is that all of this is built in real time with all your friends sitting next to you telling you what to do or even working on it with you together. But this, this is a digital atom. So what can I do with it? Well, I can do a bunch of things with it. I can, uh, I can, I, you know, I can, I can change. I can certainly, you know, do simple stuff like change what color it is. You know, I can, I can. Uh, I, sh I showed you me stretching it there a little bit. I can, I can make it uh, shiny. I can, um, I can cut it. And this is important. You know, you ask like, well, what are, you know, what's the shape of an atom? The idea here in Second Life was to make the whole definition of this object here take up. Uh, um, you know, uh, 20 or 30 bytes. So it would be a very compact little genetic representation that would tell me what this, what this object looks like. I can, uh, you know, I can, I can shear it, I can twist it, I can even make it... Uh, I, I can do just about anything I want with it. Um, so that's kind of an atom. Now let's... Now it's also physical. So it exists in a real world here. So I can, uh, I can pick it up even though, I've, even though I've got something in my hand here. I can, I can pick it up and throw it over there. I can throw it at somebody else and you can imagine there's a whole world of experience that comes with that. Um, so there's a physics engine that is animating the environment here. Everything is being continuously simulated. Um, uh, 
The other thing I can do, in, in the real world, objects have all these unusual uh, interactive capabilities. Uh, uh, a thing like a personal computer in the real world is built out of electronics, uh, you know, so mechanical physics and then electrons moving around. So we sort of said, well, how are you going to make things interactive? If I want to make this big weird object here do something interesting, how am I going to do that? Well, again, to kind of cheat and not use so much computing power, we created a scripting language, a, a programming language that lets me now take that little uh, object and attach a little bit of programming to it. So that now what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, when I, when I touch that object, I want it to change its color. And so I'm editing its code right now. Again, uh, uh, somebody could be sitting next to me while I do this. And there we go. So that says when I, when I touch that object, I want it to say touched. Let's say, hello, Stuart. And I save that. That little bit of code is now transferred to the server where we are. And that object uh, is now also running this little piece of program. And so, if I touch it, it changes its color, and it says, hello, Stuart. Now, this object can also talk to the web. So it can talk to intelligent systems that are running on machines on the internet, not just on Second Life. Uh, it can exchange information with them. It can communicate with other people. It could tell you when your friends come by, act as a doorbell, send you an email when you're... Uh, friends in Second Life come by to see you. can do just about anything. The language that we wrote is pretty fast. Um, in fact, on this island right now, there are probably about uh, 3,000 or so objects like that that are all doing things. In fact, this whole island uh, is, is about as, as many as 15,000 or so of those little tiny objects all uh, being continuously simulated by the computer. If you look up in the air, you'll see some clouds. The clouds in Second Life are a fluid simulation. It's also running on the same computer. And that fluid simulation spreads across the whole system. Uh, in fact, there are at this point around uh, closing in on 5,000 computers, about a million watts, about a megawatt of continuous electric power that runs the entire world of Second Life. Zooming in on the map here, you can see this little uh, area. And then as I zoom back here, we, we, get, we get to the whole of Second Life, which is uh, actually about the size at this point of about two San Francisco's. It's about 100 square miles. And it has tens of millions of user-created objects in it, which which brings me to another point. Let's look at my, let's look at my notes here. It's just cool. Yeah. So more is different. Um, you know, when we started with Second Life, and when you look at one of those little tiny 
you know, cubes that I was playing with there, you're struck by the thought that this in and of itself isn't very interesting, that one little object with a little bit of code on it isn't going to do very much, but um, what you want to keep in mind is that uh, things take on very different properties, emergent properties, as you scale them up. And so right from the get-go, we built Second Life to be this tiled simulation where you could just basically start with dirt. Second Life was initially 16 of these server machines and nothing but sort of some grass. Uh, this island that we're standing on now, obviously, I'm just, I just chose it to start out showing you things here. It's an island that was entirely built by the one person who owns it. You know, there's close to 5,000 of these islands now from that original 16. When you looked at those 16 simulators, and a lot of investors, say, in 2002, 2003, that kind of time frame did, they'd look at this dirt and grass and they'd say, you've got to be kidding me. You know, you guys are, first, first off, it takes all this computing power for you guys to run this ridiculous thing. And second of all, you're expecting a bunch of people that you don't know to build everything. And from what you're showing me so far, I see a stupid box that you can click on and change colors. None of this stuff is going to be very pretty. But there, we get this idea of emergent properties and of, of very, very large systems. And, you know, in the, in the words of the physicist Philip Anderson, more is very different. And so as, as this thing grew and as it came to contain millions of objects, you started to see things really come to life. You started to see uh, people competing with each other. One person would make something and the next person to come into Second Life would obviously be struck by how pretty it was and ask themselves the question of whether they uh, could make something that was nicer than that. And so what we told those investors, and this convinced none of them to invest in us, but what we told them was, just wait. It's all going to get better and this is eventually going to look good. I, I read a blog post from somebody, an investor, uh, earlier today saying, well, this Second Life thing is cool, but it doesn't really have the kind of mainstream appeal of something like World of Warcraft. Everybody seems to misunderstand this concept of emergence. Second Life was so ugly in the beginning, you wouldn't have believed it. It looked like a cardboard shantytown as you flew around the mainland, looked at what everybody was doing. We haven't changed the technology all that much, but it's gotten more and more and more compelling looking as it's grown. So very, very different when you do something like this at the scale that we're doing it. Again, you know, a million watts of power and 5,000 machines is a, it's a lot of equipment. This is, a, this is a different kind of thing. The other thing that's interesting, and you really saw that when I was, whoops, getting, still learning my Mac here. And yes, we run on Mac and Windows and Linux. Uh, the other thing is that all of this is done in one contiguous space. As I said before, you know, a, a, the web has the metaphor of hyperlinking. It has this idea that you can always jump from one page to the next, and in that sense, all the pages are connected. Some of the attempts that people have made historically to create, you know, the metaverse, to, to create 3D spaces online have failed to recognize that what's so critically important is that all of this stuff happen in one big space. If you're going to have emergent properties, if you're going to have people able to, at every scale, if you will, create something amazing, you have to uh, make it all connected to itself. 
And so Second Life is connected in a couple of different ways. One is that it's literally right next to each other. Each one of these little squares, by the way, that we see on the screen, I'm circling one there. Each one of those, you know, is another one of these little server machines. You can walk everywhere from everywhere in Second Life. It's all connected. And so what I think that did was that fueled that emergent growth holding it at the maximum level because you were just always encountering what your neighbor was doing. Now, the, the one world thing is another reason why like nobody ever wanted to invest in this. People said, but wait, you know, if I'm putting up a nightclub, I mean, I want control. I want to set where the sun is in the sky and I want to, I don't want any neighbors. I don't want some goofy neighbor with a, you know, a tiki hut. I want to control the whole experience. And when you come to my nightclub, I'm going to show you everything. And somehow, strangely, and I think we had the right intuition about this, that, was just, that just isn't the right idea. It's what everybody individually wants. It's not what makes things happen. It's not the way the real world works. And so from the very get-go, we believe that the economy, the objects, the, literally the physical terrain of Second Life had to be one world that everybody could be a part of. So uh, that was something very important as well. So let's see. So that's kind of, that's kind of the world. So that's the, uh, and frankly, my background is physics and computers, programming. The, the piece that we sort of started with, uh, as I said, the, the yin, the environment of Second Life, was this world simulation. We were uh, trying to build a world simulator. What I think we have learned a lot about, I know I have learned a lot about as time has gone by, is now what happens to you when you put yourself into that place. Uh, not just, you know, the digital representation of me as an avatar here, but what, what kind of, you know, who am I, what does it mean to sort of inject yourself into a digital space? So, and I think before we do this, I'm going to try to go somewhere. So the first line there is the gateway drug. Stuart and I were just talking about this with respect to Burning Man. Uh, there, is an, there is a property inherent in the experience of projecting one's identity in one way or another into the computer and then interacting with other people in real time there's this magical thing that Second Life takes advantage of that, that text chat before it took advantage of, which is that uh, when the environment has the, the property that you're sort of there, but you're not really there. You're, you're not really making eye contact, but you kind of are. And you, so you're close, but you're not close. It has this fascinating kind of uh, indirect property. You, you get this gateway drug effect. And what I mean by that is that you're willing to connect with people and, and share information with them and create bonds and create friendships in a very rapid, potent way that I don't think in real life we can ever achieve except under unusual circumstances like Burning Man, for people that have seen that, gone to it. Um, so to show you that, let me see. I've got, let's see here. Oh, where was I? Now, see, I've, I don't have my... I don't have my instant message from Dustin here. Now you can look up people and uh oh, he's not online. I'm in trouble. Um what I'm gonna try to do right now, let's see if our you can look for events in Second Life to talk about 
to talk about what it's like to be a person in Second Life, I thought I'd try to find us some live music to go listen to. This is pretty cool. Okay, let's try this. I just teleported, jumping to somewhere new. Uh, the other thing that's amazing about Second Life is it's, it's, it's if we had to ship this environment to you like as a video game, if we had to put it on DVD and send it to you, it would at this point, it's, it's about 25 or 30 terabytes of data, so it would be a big it would be a big shipping carton of these things, and you'd get really sick of uh, changing the disk. What I'm looking for is, oh, look at all the little green people over there. Oh, this is great. This is a, this is a club called Cecilia's, and uh, this is a live music club. So I figured this was a perfect place to talk about We'll see what's going on here for a second, and then I'll, I'll probably mute this. So. Okay, this is my last song of the night. That's live. Lyndon, this is your one song warning. I'm trying to find who's singing here, and it's I'm going to... It's an honor to play for you guys tonight. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Please stick around. Lyndon Hart is coming up next. This is so cool. And I'm going to explain the the person who's playing here, and I'm looking for. Oh, there she is. Okay, okay. My life goes on. Now, this is just crazy. Solendrian, who I've uh, seen in Second Life before. In fact, I can say she's singing right now live, wherever she is, and everybody's dancing and listening to her. I'm going to take off my little translator here. We got too much cruft on the screen here. So what she's doing right now is sitting in her house or her home studio and she's playing this music for us, for all the people that are here in the club, and she's streaming it live at 128 kilobits to us as an mp3 file and we're listening to it. So I can ask her to actually, when she's done I'll ask her to give us a Shout out. One of the coolest things I always enjoy is, as Philip Linden, everybody knows my name because Linden is the last name of the, the Lindens, the company. Did <laughs> you hear? You still wear your Second Life coat? I want one. You didn't give me one at the convention. No storm can shake my inmost calm. So I'm telling her. She was actually, I think, at our community conference, which was this summer, which was right here in this room for anybody who remembers it. So that's weird. But, so wait a minute now, what was I going to talk about? So what is it, what is it? The jacket, yeah. I don't know, oh, 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 the jacket. Oh, you mean my leather jacket? There's only one of those. She knows that. Um, so I'm going to sit down in the chair here for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> 
surrounded by all these people and talk about uh, a couple of things about about being virtual. Uh, one of the things that people... This is a game of, can I interest you more than the screen? <laughs> Stuff's all streamed, so everybody will kind of come in here. But when people think about being digital, they, I think, traditionally regard it as being a little bit anonymous. And in some sense, in the sense that you're true name, your physical identity is hidden behind your virtual identity, there is a degree of anonymity. But actually, thank you, you've been a fabulous audience. Love you all. Have a great night. That's great. So the thing that's so interesting about the, the this and this sort of an environment is there's actually an opposite thing that happens. There's an, there's a, what is the opposite of being anonymous when it, with, with respect to your digital identity? It is so easy to create the world around you in Second Life. It is so easy to say who you want to be. I mean, if you look at my clothing here, I mean, now I'm something of an icon because I sort of left these clothes on after I made them a couple of years ago because people came to know me as having them on and so I never changed my clothes. But if you meet people in Second Life, what you will see, now, I mean, let's just take a look, you know, at these two. The choices that people make about their identities here are easier to make than it is in the real world to say who we want to be. And so, when you walk up to somebody in Second Life, if I sit down, I could walk over here and sit and talk to this person. But when you look at the jewelry here, and you look at, you look at her you know, pink lips, and you look at the, the fact that she's wearing an earring that... Oh, that's people clapping. Run that down low. <laughs> There's a whole prim hair. This is so great, like a great conference. You get the side chatter going on while I'm talking here. If, if you look at the, the details that each person uh, and the time they take in choosing who they want to be, what you begin to realize is that an opposite sort of thing is happening. You are projecting your identity into this space in a more facile uh, and detailed way than you typically do in reality. In the real world, we can make these excuses like, well, I'm busy, or I don't have enough money to really dress the way I want to dress, or put the art in my apartment the way I want to. That's not the real me. What you're seeing is just an issue of convenience. But in Second Life and in these digital worlds to come, we don't have that level of difficulty. There is no cost of goods. It doesn't cost anything to make things here. There are tens of thousands of clothing designers in Second Life. If you fail to find clothes that you think suit you in Second Life, you're, there's something wrong with you. There's, there's so much stuff here. Uh, so, if, you, know, sim, you know, ditto your... People always want me to come and visit with them. Uh, your house, uh, who your neighbors are, all the details of your life are so plastic here that you find yourself externalizing your thoughts and your intentions much more than you actually do in the real world. And we should come back to that when we talk about kind of 
you know, futures and uh, the meaning of things. Let's see. Do I have to stand up to see my notes here? I just love this. I've, I've never had the opportunity to just sit and wander around and goof off. I usually have to use the PowerPoint slides. The sum of our dreams. So, uh, one of the questions I get, and it's really cool for us to have made the progress that we have in this and, you know, have people actually seriously ask this question is they say, well, science fiction, the Matrix, Snow Crash, you pick it, uh, has imagined, uh, oh, are you guys laughing at the missing, the invisible person? Yeah, that's actually a bug. Now, that's not an intentional projection of identity. It's an accidental projection of identity. People ask me a lot, well, you guys built the Matrix. What, what's different? What's different about the Matrix than the one that we've imagined in, 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 in film and in fiction? You know, the, the imagined uh, metaverse in the movies, it always has a consistent aesthetic style, right? Uh, we all wear black trench coats, and we're all kind of deadly, and, you know, we're... Our hair is slicked back, you know. That's a pretty common theme there, you know, the cyber dystopia. Actually, if you think about it, if the digital world is a world that belongs to us, and if it's to be real in this important sense that we are able to create it, then what you expect is that it's sort of this sum of all our dreams. It's the statistical average of everything we want. So what people have built in Second Life is a world, you know, I'll pull the camera back here, you know, it's a world that is what they wanted, and it's a world of, of everyone's aspirations, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a world of, of old ships, and it's a world of scuba diving, and it's a world of, it's a world that has bathrooms, because we value bathrooms. It's a world that had, has Ferraris and Rolexes, and it's a world that, as I've said a lot of times, uh, what we all want is a sort of Frank Lloyd Wright cantilevered house on that cliff, Los Angeles. There's some palm trees, and below there's a dock where we have a little power boat, and we watch the sunset from the, from the deck. Um, that is, in some sense, the statistical average of our dreams. And so I think that's really interesting, that the more plastic we make the world, the more it resembles whatever it is we uh, want. So that's another thought about about identity. So, there's just so many opportunities to goof around here. I'm trying to think if I've missed any of the basic sort of enabling capabilities. As I said before, a lot of these people's identities, Cylindrians, for example, where is she? she everybody's a Cylindrian fan. We got another guy up here on stage singing now. Um, I don't, I don't have him on, but boy, I don't know what he's doing. Um, <laughs> let me kind of walk out out of, out of the madness here. Oh, I don't know why I'm walking like that either. <laughs> the bugs, they come when you do the demos. Um, so let's, so let me, let me take a bit of time and uh, having shown you the world, 
and what it is to be a part of it. Um, let me meditate a little bit on the things that we're learning. Now, again, everybody who looked at this thing kind of conventionally would say, um, historically would say, well, you guys have got this wacky kind of thing like the well or something where there's all these incredibly creative uh, uh, thinking people. There's only a few thousand of them. This was like in 2004. And the character of this thing and the feature set and, and the, the sensibilities of it are all driven by this crazy bunch of creative people um, that have been nuts enough to figure out this complicated UI and get a really fast computer and everything so they can run it. And so people have always said, well, uh, there's going to be this split. In the beginning, there's going to be 30, 40% of the people are going to be making the content that everybody else is consuming. In other words, everybody's going to be a creator. And then as things grow, it's going to be like the real world. It, almost nobody makes anything, and everybody, almost everybody, almost all of the time is just a consumer. Like we consume media, and we consume clothing, and we consume houses, and everything else. What if that wasn't true? There's a lot of... There's actually been some suggestion of this if you look at things like the sort of Web 2.0, you know, YouTube and video, and what people have been doing is they've been given increasingly the ability to create things online. But in Second Life, you probably see this brought to a, to a um, point of focus that you don't see anywhere else. When people are given the ability to make things, to create, when we're all given the ability to be quite creative compared to real life, we take it. We seem willing to be creative to a degree that there doesn't appear to be any end to. We will, uh, we will sort of make our environment and share it with others and meet people and make things with them, be creative to a degree that doesn't appear to have an end. We have gone, in, in, 19, in the beginning of this year, we had 100,000 people in Second Life that, have, that had signed up, many less people that were actively using it. Now we have 1.7 million people that have signed up. So that's a 17-factor growth this year. It's still 30%. The statistics we have that indicate how much time people spend making stuff is not changing significantly. People are still taking advantage of the plasticity of the environment and making it their own, and that doesn't seem to be changing as more and more mainstream people come into Second Life. So that's my first point about the future. If we use technology to enable the world to be deeply mutable by us, we will, it seems, to a degree that I think we've sort of forgotten because of the technology of media and the difficult... Uh, how expensive it is to build a car, you know, or, or a computer chip. We have sort of lost, in a sense, in modern technology, our ability to be creative. And these digital worlds are going to bring it back. And what that means is that the world's going to have a lot more variety. Second Life hasn't gotten any less nuts as it's grown one bit. And there's, there's just as much stuff as ever. So, plasticity. Plasticity is something that we all seem to... Ow. We should go and there's like skydiving. There's all kinds of crazy things I could do here. Um, it is so 
funny to try and challenge myself to run a presentation where I'm simultaneously using Second Life and talking. But I like it. Ah, and I gotta take this. I gotta, you know what? See, I gotta take this darn thing off here and put it on the ground. I keep sweeping it into my leg. Um, the time machine idea there. <laughs> put that, bring it back. Um, everything happens uh, a lot faster in Second Life uh, because there is much more facile communication. Uh, there is an ability to very rapidly prototype things, try out new ideas, find a business partner, uh, get married. All, everything happens faster there. So there's a generalized property of Second Life and I believe also of uh, virtual worlds and virtualization in general that suggests that yes, we are going to continue to sort of accelerate the time scales associated with virtually everything we do. I guess for some people that's a depressing or stress-causing thought, and for others it's very exciting, but it definitely seems to be the case here. So people tend to use Second Life today for things like sort of taste testing and prototyping and things where you can sort of use that time machine quality. Starwood, for example, put a hotel in Second Life. We could go see it. It's the Aloft Hotel. They haven't built this hotel in the real world yet. They built it in Second Life with the idea being that people would come and wander around. They actually had a, an artist, Ben Folds, play a party at the in the lobby of the hotel with the idea that people would come to the hotel, wander around, go in the rooms and give them feedback on whether it was a good hotel. They built it very accurately. Uh, and they got, you know, 25 or 30 meaningful reviews from people, you know, emails and stuff after they did that. So they were able to exploit the fact that it is just cheaper and faster to do things in there than it is to do them here. Um, uh, everything's free. So, you know, with media today, we've got this thing we're contending with that says that if you're an artist, you know, reproducing your music is technologically trending towards being zero cost, and unless you try to legislate against that, which is, seems fruitless given how many countries there are and how many different approaches people can take to this, you are not going to be able to stop the, the physics, so to speak, of that cost equation, that things are going to become freer and freer. Well, Second Life is the ultimate extension of that because everything is free. In fact, the only scarce resource, and Stuart was reminding me earlier that I think Jaron Lanier perhaps said this almost 20 years ago, the only natural resource in this future virtual world is creativity. As a pragmatic technologist, I'd put a little comma and then say, and also computing resources. Uh, as people sadly know in Second Life, there is only so much grid here to extract uh, simulation power from. But, but pragmatically in, or, or, or strategically in the limit of computation, the only thing that's precious in this environment is creativity. And so things like you as a brand, you as a famous person in Second Life is meaningful. The idea of you charging a fixed price for every copy of an article of clothing is probably not as meaningful long term. So again, there is a pressure there toward diversity. So that's another thing we learn about the future. In a future where the cost of goods descends and descends and descends, I think it's less likely that there will be big mass market uh, concepts. I've always found it amusing that the sort of dystopias imagined by science fiction inevitably made the world more gray, made it more monochromatic. That's so very unlikely to be true because these costs of production, of prototyping, and of distribution are reduced to virtually zero by this type of an environment. And again, I think Second Life, we focused on making that, empowering that because we so wanted emergence to drive everything, but this is just going to be intrinsically true of any of these systems because there's no there's only bits moving around here. Um, 
uh, I wrote down there, I wrote orgy and rebirth. You know, there's a funny thing about Second Life. Everybody says, oh my God, if I see another dance club, I'm going to puke or... Uh, you know, all the jewelry or the bling. Uh, we didn't see that. I don't know if anybody noticed, you know, that the, the jewelry all scintillates with little reflections. It, it's just funny. Another interesting thing I'd say about digital worlds is that they provide this cathartic environment in which we can work through all the stuff that we always wanted to do. You know, we can have as much sex as we want to have. We can, we can have a Ferrari. We can fly an airplane. We can go skydiving. We can have that house on the hill that I talked about earlier, and then, and I think this is the uplifting and inspiring part, we can kind of move on and start thinking about what's next. And so when you go to Second Life, and I encourage you to try it, you know, you see this interesting superpositioning of people that are kind of just doing that, you know, I'm going to live life to the fullest relative to the desires that I have now in the real world. And then on top of that, and in the margins and in the spaces between things, you find these odd and interesting people who are kind of now, they've reached that zen-like calm where they've, sated, they've satiated themselves with all of this stuff and they're sort of thinking about what they're going to do next. Um, so that's another thought about, about the future here. Maybe we're going to, uh, well, maybe we're going to become less materialistic in a way just because we're going to have so much. The future of work, um, to a great degree, and this has actually really been pioneered in some of the uh, massively multiplayer games like World of Warcraft. In World of Warcraft, if you have 200 people that are in your guild that are willing to go and fight battles for you, they're all paying you to be a part of your team. They don't have to be there. They can walk away at any time. And so inherently, uh, uh, inherently, management and organization happens differently in an environment in which people have so many options and are so much fundamentally freer. And so I think that's something that's very important. There are 20, 30, 40-person companies making, you know, approaching multi-million dollar annual revenues in Second Life building content, things like that hotel that I mentioned earlier. For the most part, those are companies organized of people that met in Second Life. They don't even necessarily know each other's physical identities. They work together entirely in the environment. There is a profound decentralization that's being tested as an experiment, if you will, here in this world. And what it is showing is what I think a lot of modern thinkers have already told us, which is that decentralization generally works better that businesses can operate more efficiently, that people can operate together better when they are very, very free to make their own strategic judgments about what they should do, and then you sort of see the emergent sum of who's able to be effective as a manager or an organizer under those conditions, rather than these sort of monarchic uh, work environments that we have today, where the CEO, you know, you live in that town, and there's four or five companies you could work at, but, you know, you're, you're better off not telling off the CEO. A corollary to that is that people are starting to do a lot of business meetings in Second Life, a lot of business meetings, real-world business meetings. I mean like IBM, you know, having a team meeting. Uh, and the reason that they're doing that I don't think is necessarily because those meetings are empowered fundamentally from the content perspective by being done in Second Life, but instead because um, they're more fun and you're more likely to, you know, speak the truth in those meetings. So that's a fascinating thing to think about. Again, we all came into this thinking, well, we're going to use technology to somehow make business meetings better. I think most business meetings aren't of any value, so you can't improve on zero. But you could make it more fun. So the Museum New York. So therefore, I say uh, that if, um, 
if digital environments are likely to be premier environments for collaboration and creativity, if we're going to move a lot of intellectual energy into Second Life, into, into things like Second Life, into cyberspace, then what is actually going to happen to the real world? So my, my last thought, before we can take some questions and go in whatever direction we want here, look at some other stuff in Second Life, is I really believe that particularly the places where we have conventionally gathered to work, the skyscrapers of New York, when I look into the future, people say, what's going to happen here? I get this feeling, and it's a weird thought, but uh, I think it's true, that these are going to become kind of like museums, kind of like how we visit the old, like, uh, we, we, we visit the old, you know, paper mill that's down the way that, you know, you, you go and see it now, you still go to it, there's still people wandering through it, but they're wandering through it as a museum, a memory. We're going to move the most facile, collaborative, creative aspects of our intentions and our thought and our actions into the virtual worlds for all the reasons that I've talked about here. They're just, it's easier, it's better, it's higher resolution, it's, you know, it just has all these amazing properties. And uh, I think what that means is that fairly quickly, probably quicker than, as is usually the case with these exponential technology curves, slower at the beginning and then much faster than any of us thought toward the end, I think we really are going to fundamentally change the, the nature of how we look at the real world. I think we're going to look at it as... Uh, historical in a way that is, is exciting and difficult to imagine. So let me, uh, let me transition there to questions, goofing around, whatever we want to do here. That was amazing. Thank you. Uh, you've got these cards I should have mentioned earlier. Go ahead and write questions on them. They'll come up to Kevin, and they'll, he'll pass on the good ones up to me. A um, couple things that we chatted about just before the audience came in. One was uh, I was asking uh, you know, what are the limitations on this in terms of sort of scale in the world. Where are the residents now in the world uh, of the, you know, that 1.7 million? Are they all in California or in the U.S. or what? Right. Um, about half of Second Life's residents are in the United States today. About half of them are outside. The, the proportion is increasing quite rapidly. We've just... Uh, created language translation capabilities. Uh, you, you can switch the UI to a bunch of different languages. Right now, the run rate for new signups is more, I think it's more than 50% outside the United States. Where, especially outside the U.S.? Uh, in the U.K., uh, English speaking is first and foremost, then Northern Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, big contingent in Australia. Uh, but we are in, you know, 130 countries. There's people, there's 4,000, or maybe it's like 8,000 now, I suppose. It was like a month ago. People in Turkey mm -hmm. uh, that have Second Life accounts. So uh, very exciting. In fact, you, you mentioned that. I, 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 I got my translator. I'll, sh I'll show you this. This is just so incredibly cool. One of, the, one of the gadgets I've got here, I had it on there earlier, is, is this little translator toy that somebody built. I, I found it. You can see it down there at the bottom of the screen. I'm, I'm turning it on here. You see, I can pick English up here, and I can pick Japanese over here, and then I can say, you know, oh, there's probably going to be somebody in the audience here who can check this out, uh, to San Francisco. And then watch right below that. In kanjis, no less. Yeah. 
That's actually being done by sending the text that I typed to Babblefish and then getting back the response. And if I, I have walked around Second Life, I've gone to the Japanese island. Well, I mean, there's lots of different places where people, obviously there's no segregation, but there's an island that is mostly people from Japan, and I've sat there and spoken to them bidirectionally, watching their kanji translated into English. You can't do that in the real world as much as people would have you believe you can buy these little gadgets because it's just too hard. You don't have the timing. But in Second Life, you have enough time to wait. That sounds like another reason to do certain kinds of business meetings in Second Life where yep. you've got people from various cultures who want to use their own language and translate all their bright ideas through Babblefish. <laughs> it makes, makes them even it's brighter. Amusing. Sure. It's amusing. It's comedy. It's, it's a comic <laughs> experience to talk to people with Babblefish sometimes. Uh, the question always comes up with these things. Uh, do women use this thing at all? So uh, right now there are about... 15 to 16,000 people in Second Life, about 43% of them are women, as it stands today. I think the reason that it's less, women use Second Life on an hours basis quite a bit more than men do. Uh, by quite a bit, I mean like 30 to 40% more. Uh, so that accounts for the difference. I think the reason that it's 43% total concurrency and not 60% is because Second Life still requires an extremely uh, fast graphics card to use, which I, I, I would hazard the guess that if you're female and you have bought a personal computer, you're less likely to buy one with an NVIDIA 8800 graphics card or whatever that you need to run, the, to run this fast because so many games have been male in their demographics. How about age? The median age is 32, but the older you are, the more you use Second Life. Second Life is not as uh, heavily used in the sort of 18 to 24-year-old category where all the games are focused. And the older you get, the more you use it. And again, you know, pretty consistent with the basic experience and ideas. Do you have a theory why older people will spend more time on it? Well, I think that the fundamental promise that the name makes... <laughs> Is, is pretty, I, I, you know, I've, I've conversed with people who have pretty much echoed that. There's a great story. One of our employees was a woman I was interviewing her, and she told me this is just so cool. She was a big Second Life user. Her mom was a big Second Life user. She's at a nightclub. She's dressed up. She's dancing in Second Life, and her mom shows up. Of course, nobody knows this. Her mom's, you know, she knows her mom's Second Life name. Mom is dressed up, you know, to kill. And this woman, I am her mom and says, Mom, you know, could you, you know, this is crazy. And her mom's, her mom, I am's her like, you know, piss off, you know, I want to live my own life. And then she tells me, her mom, 80. And living. Here's a question from Chris Duffield. Where are you, Chris Duffield? Right down here. Uh, is Second Life archived? Will future users be able to visit Second Life's of the past, or is it always just a rolling now? It is just in the now, right now, and of course the reason for that is that we are right at the edge of disk space and computation. So making uh, time slices of it is something the Internet Archive of Second Life does not exist yet, and it's probably going to take a decade or something for capacity to so exceed uh, the limits of what people are able to do in here that that starts to become possible. Can people archive their own experience in Second Life on their own box? No. Interesting. You, you, I, that, that, that's a conditional no. There's some things you can do to copy and you know, store your own content. We want to make that better. But pragmatically, mm -hmm. it's hard. It's a lot okay. of data. Adrian Cotter has a question right over here. Is there evil in Second Life? Is that one of the emergent properties? Um, yeah, there is. In fact, I think that 
it is inherent in a complex system. Anything as complicated as Second Life is going to be a place where you can do wonderful things. You can also piss people off. Um, the crime in Second Life is fraud. It's what we call griefing, which is just making people mad to the point where they don't want to be there anymore. And there's as much of it there, I think, as there is uh, here in some ways, but you're a little safer. So that uh, answers or begins to ask, answer Josh's question. Uh, how many people have had accounts suspended and for doing what? Um, the, uh, the, uh, the fundamentally, accounts suspended, uh, banned from Second Life, probably in the hundreds now. Um, so statistically, the answer is surprisingly few. Pierre Amidiar, an investor in Linden Lab, says you know eBay was founded on the belief that people were basically good. I'd go a little farther to say that if the lights are on in the room and they're really bright, uh, people are basically good. Second Life is a transparent society to a profound degree. Uh, we were talking about this. You do not have anonymity in your identity. You are who you are, and so you are fearful of compromising that relationship. Is there a true name behind every handle in that sense? Yeah. So you can find the real person. Although, this, again, you can have a few accounts. We haven't solved that problem completely of true names. You know, there's not a biometric that ties a Second Life account to you. Probably someday there will be validation and verification systems that will actually do that. You'll be able to choose, you know, who you want to trust. Okay, here's a question from Kevin Kelly, speaking of evil. <laughs> I added that. Uh, why not try the grand experiment of eliminating copyrights for creation? Embrace the universal copy bot and let all creation remain in the public domain. Is it too late to try that? Right on. Um, very rich discussion, as Kevin might know, in, in Second Life, a huge issue. Uh, people argue about copyrights all the time. I, I think that Second Life has a number of communities emerging in it that have very different rules. Um, whether or not you fundamentally embrace copyright, say, within the local concept of community is definitely a testable assertion. I mean, you can, you can set your objects in Second Life to be indefinitely copyable by everybody else or even everybody within a, an enclosed group freely. And so you can test that. Mm -hmm. I think what we've got going on here is a kind of a test of that that will stabilize at some real value that I think will be fairly, well, I think it'll be a lot closer to, it'll, it'll be a lot more liberal and more copyable than what we have, say, in copyright law today. I don't think there's the ability or there's going to be, it's going to be likely that everybody in Second Life is going to manage to enforce and continue extending copyright law the way, sadly, we've seen it, you know, done here. Um, you mentioned that there's 5,000 islands. On the islands, do people get to sort of make alternative versions of the world where the economy works differently or, I don't know, the physics works differently or something? Yeah, you know, there are places where you can, you can kill people. There are guns in Second Life. I was shooting one earlier before everybody came in. Uh, so there are a lot of experiments going on. You know, there's very liberal... Uh, communes that you can experiment with. You can't turn off gravity. Everybody always wants to turn off gravity. There's not a thing to turn off gravity yet. We'll probably put it in at some point. Uh, it's hard from a computational perspective because yeah. then everything's scattered up to infinity, you know, above mm -hmm. the, the, the ground. But, but there are a lot of experiments in different sort of ways of living that are going on and going on, you know, to a much richer degree, as you can imagine, than in the real world. Uh, Michael Schrag has a variation on the, uh, the violence and pestilence question. Are there no barbarians, no world of warfare crowd who wants to come over and colonize Second Life? 
oh, barbarians like from World of, from World of Warcraft, you call it? Yeah, huh? That happens all the time, actually. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that's, that's one of the funniest... Uh, one of the funniest things to see happen in Second Life is actually to see an intentional group of people, miscreants in many cases, coming in to just torment everybody in Second Life, kind of get seduced by the environment. So it happens a lot. People will come in and they'll kind of, you know, 80% of them will go back to playing World of Warcraft or whatever, and, you know, they'll have a hoot, you know, for a while. And then they'll, a group of them will basically stick around and start building something of value. Again, I, again, I think with the lights on, with, with a transparent environment, people are basically creative and basically good. But yes, that's one of the funniest. I, I mean, I shouldn't say funny. I mean, sometimes it's funny, and then sometimes it's, it's frustrating for us because we'd like to have better systems to help at least minimally police things. But uh, yeah, people do come in that way. There are barbarians. You haven't said much about the economy in Second Life, and, and uh, you know, Wall Street Journal and all these places, Forbes and... Business yeah. Week and so on are all over Second Life trying to understand uh, how come you get a basically a real functioning token economy that intersects with the dollar economy in, in uh, strange and continually marvelous ways. Yeah. What can you say about the what you're learning about the economy of Second Life? Well, fundamentally, we always wanted a market environment to dominate the physics of the world beyond the beyond the sort of automata of local rules that, that, that was the basic world simulation that I talked so much about. We really believed that the market was the best conversation for how, what, what was going to be a value and what wasn't. And so we built a currency system and we actually allow that currency to float against the U.S. dollar. This is a fascinating issue. Why do we do that? Well, because the GDP, the productivity in Second Life, as both the technology and the user base scales, is going up at a more rapid rate than the number of people. And so what we actually do, just like the Federal Reserve, is we actually print new money uh, and put it into Second Life with the goal of keeping the exchange rate roughly constant. And so it's bizarre. We do the same thing that, that a government does in managing the money supply. How do you actually calculate what the metabolic rate is economically in that? Do you have some script yeah. that tells you that? Well, the, the traditional basket of goods is obviously kind of out the window because you don't need anything to survive here. So food and shelter and clothing is, is kind of meaningless. Um, but what we do is we look at the average amount of money that people spend in a transaction. We look at their total amount of money they're spending over unit time. We look at the diversity of objects that are being bought and sold. Uh, and again, by the way, as you could imagine, the contrarian thing that happens here is people who have probably heard like Adidas, Nike, Starwood, Toyota, everybody's in Second Life. These companies are doing, a, a number of them are doing really amazing things, but they are as yet invisible against the backdrop of content that people create. So the diversity of stuff that's bought and sold is almost as large as the number of transactions. It's like everything was a one-off here. Um, several people have asked, how do you make money? Um, is this a subscription deal, and what's the, uh, where does the money come into Linden? Uh, so the way we make money is, uh, for the most part, and I'll, I'll simplify here for this discussion, we basically rent that land. Uh, because we're operating at this point all of these machines that simulate the world, we don't anticipate, by the way, it's going to grow much faster than we can put machines online. So it's going to become, we think, Internet-like. Uh, in the way this all works. In other words, people should be able to run their own simulators and services. But for today, the way we make money is we basically charge $20 an acre a month 
for all the land. So it's kind of the entrepreneur's dream. Again, we wanted to spur a lot of creative entrepreneurship. So just like moving, you know, we, we always looked at Second Life as this big empty country where we were trying to get people to immigrate. And so, and, and we're trying to get people that were creative and entrepreneurial to immigrate. So we always, we just said, well, what about just a flat, you know, unimproved property tax? What if that's the only thing you have to pay? No sales tax, no income tax, just a property tax. So that's how we make our money, actually. Those 5,000 machines each have 16 acres of land, $20 an acre. It adds up to a lot of money. So we're doing fine, you know, that way. So that's a artificially created scarce resource. There's only so much land that you've created 100 square miles or whatever it's up to by now. Mm -hmm. And so you expand that, basically, it sounds like, linearly with the number of residents you get. Yeah, there's actually a fixed cost associated with putting new land online, which people have to pay. So there's a kind of a pay-for-a-new-server fee that happens, and that regulates in a market way how rapidly new land is created. People always ask, hey, there's just an infinity of land here. And no, there's not. That's actually a critical element of a stable uh, system like this. You don't want there to be... Uh, a million square miles of land because what, what people will do is they'll spread themselves out so much they can't see their neighbors and then they'll complain that there's nobody to play with. Uh, so cities keep coming back. Yep. Um, question from Ash. Where's Ash? A-S-H. Right over there. What type of behavior tracking are you doing? Uh, in other words, what do most, how do most people spend their time? What are the most common activities, et cetera? I mean, you know, there's a whole cadre of people out there doing uh, Google research with their basic data. There must be people doing research within Second Life now of what people do. Well, uh, fundamentally, you know, much like, again, much like the net, there, there's too much data here to do a whole lot of that with, and I think that's great. I mean, I think fundamentally you're going you're gonna to have a basic desire for privacy around what you're doing in here that's, you know, akin to the real world, and we have to respect that. Uh, are there people doing, you know, marketing analysis in Second Life? Yeah, I guess. I, we, we actually have an ethics policy. There's, there's, you know, 30 or 40 universities teaching classes at any time in Second Life, including places like Harvard. Um, it, we actually have, in that case, an ethics policy around don't, don't bother people too much. If you're, you know, if you're being a sociologist and you're studying people in Second Life, you have to treat them with the same respect and uh, rules that you do in the real world. We don't, in terms of what people are doing the most in Second Life, I'd say the best thing we know, we, we can look at things like gross transaction levels and things. Uh, the best that we could say is kind of what I said before, which is people kind of play and uh, shop and go to dance clubs and stuff, a lot like the real world, and then there's a smaller percentage of kind of exploration beyond that. What kind of emergent sort of guidelines and rules have you come on? I mean, the Burning Man, you know, by and by they, they banished dogs, and uh, they said uh, park your car and get out of it, and from then on bike and, and, uh, and walk. There's so a what kind of rules like that have emerged because they had to? There's great rules like that. Like you can, we let you basically put anything on your avatar you want. You can have shiny jewelry and you can have prim hair. You saw some people talking about that, which is, I don't, I'm, you know, one of the uh, eco-sensitive people who doesn't have prim hair. Uh, the more stuff you're wearing as an individual, it makes you more beautiful, but it also slows down the experience for everybody else. So there are emergent rules like take all that crap off if you're coming to a public lecture like this. And uh, there, there's things like that. There's, there's a lot of rules around behavior, when it's appropriate to speak. Uh, people are surprisingly quiet in a group discussion in Second Life. It's very compelling. You, you can easily have this number of people uh, and, and be reading the chat. And, you know, so long as it's a not intentionally uh, 
gregarious or you know mean crowd, you, you, you get a stable environment. Here's a question I bet you get a lot of from Amber Kerr. Way in back, they're waving your hand. Do you think there is a possibility that Second Life detracts from its users' first lives, their real lives? For example, they find solace in virtual relationship other than maintaining their real-world right. relationships. What's the divorce rate? Come on. Yep. <laughs> actually, I should know that. There, there is a divorce concept. Uh, you can actually have a partner. In the same life. is true with sailboats, by the way. Yeah. Um, but let me say this. Uh, let me say a couple of things. Well, first, let me tell you a story. There was a guy named uh, Max Mondes. He's, he's a well-known guy in Second Life, built skyscrapers, built furniture uh, buildings. He got on our forums one time and he said, I lost 70 pounds while using Second Life. Now, this was a guy who sometimes was clocking over 100 hours a week. And there's a lot of people who do that much, Second Life. And so everybody got on the forums, including me. I was one of the first ones and said, Max, you know, your weight should go in the opposite direction while you're using Second Life. And I said, what happened? And he said, well, I've been here for a couple of years now, and every day, every few days, I'm tweaking my avatar. I'm getting a new piece of clothing. I'm keeping up with the trends. I'm putting on whatever. I'm going, to, I'm going out. And he said, at some point, it just struck me, it's so easy to modify my avatar. Could it really be all that hard to modify my body? And, and there anecdotally have been a lot of stories like that. I think, though, the big picture question about is Second Life making you dumber or smarter is, is answered by the question of, well, what are you doing there? If you're sort of treating Second Life like a lemonade stand, you're trying to make a little extra money or you're trying to convince people to do something or you're trying to prototype some, some architecture or build an airplane or whatever, let me tell you, Second Life presents you with more intellectual challenge around socialization and business formation and friendship and uh, programming and everything else, as, as deep as you want to go, so to speak. It presents you with more challenge than in the real world. So I would boldly make the opposite argument, which is for a lot of people, or at least opportunistically, not for everybody, but if you want it to, it can be the case that it can actually make you smarter to be sitting in front of the computer and doing this because it's exposing you to a higher degree of intellectual challenge. Debatable, we could talk about it more. There's a question from Aaron Waltz-Romberger. Right over here. Uh, do you think someone could make a living by working only in Second Life? Um, at this point, hundreds of people do. Uh, there was a woman uh, who did a press release earlier this week. We, we didn't do it. It was funny because it, we're, we've grown so much now, we were getting calls to confirm whether this was actually true. It was Ancha Chung, who graced the cover of Business Week a few months back, uh, who is a land baron in Second Life. She basically owns and resells real estate and rents it. And she has a million dollars at this point in assets uh, in the value of the land. She Lin has Linden dollars or U.S. dollars? U.S. So that's a ton of Linden dollars, 250 million Linden dollars in value. So um, she's actually making a big living. People making clothing uh, in Second Life, jewelry, furniture, uh, running these nightclubs like the one that we were in, you know, that live act. You've you got a whole economy that's behind that. Uh, many of those people, this is their full-time job, believe it or not. Uh, the total economy, is, again, we haven't touched much on the economy. The total economy of Second Life is about 10 million U.S. dollars a month in exchanges between people, not, not what we make, in, in, in goods and services transacted. So there's a big pie there to have a piece of. Uh, how much money exists since you're the creator of it? Do you know the total? About $5 million. So that's fascinating. For those who are in macroeconomics, the velocity, the rate at which money changes hands, 
in Second Life is about 200% a month. So that's like total, you know, really holding down the fast forward button on the time machine. Uh, Alex Zwistler, where are you, Alex? Right here. Is there a third life on the horizon? <laughs> where will the exponential excel- acceleration of, a t- of technology take Second Life? Well, and again, we were chatting about this a little earlier. Uh, people seem amazingly incapable of extrapolating technology trends. They always believe technology will affect them more in the immediate future, and they don't. They're unwilling to even embrace what's going to happen farther out. The first thing that's going to happen here, and it's absolutely certain, if you see movies today, you see scenes that were created entirely using CG. They were created using computers, okay? In a movie today, given a whole lot of offline processing, you can create scenes that look, you can't tell the difference between them and reality. Well, in just a few years' time, as this technology moves, as it always does from mainframes, so to speak, to, to real-time processing on PCs, Second Life is going to look like a movie. Now think how that's going to affect you. When you watch the trees blow in the wind and you watch the, the, the birds fly by, they're going to be at the resolution and detail of what you see in the real world. There won't be any difference. The claim that, oh, I'm not going to get into this because it doesn't look real enough yet. Yeah, well, just give it a couple of years. So I think that's one thing. And then I think looking way farther out at technology, uh, as I said, we're going to move a lot of our creative energy into here. And I think that, you know, the sort of uh, whole singularity discussion of how much computation we'll be able to do once it's here, when a scripted object is as complicated as your brain, uh, what's it going to be able to do? Well, that remains to be seen. What I would say is there's a lot of people in Second Life, that island in the beginning was, was all, uh, I didn't try and find it for you, but there's all these birds and there's all these A-life animals that are roaming around on that island. It's an experiment in how far you can go with that. So that's going to change things. All of that's pretty much extrapolating in kind of a, a steady curve from what we've got so far. Do you think there'll be thresholds and cusps and tipping points into surprising weirdness? And basically work backwards on what kinds of things have surprised you most in the few years that Second Life has been up now? Yeah, yeah you know, I think emergent systems inevitably exhibit discontinuous change. They, they, they always, things pop into view, viruses bloom and take over a whole place. Uh, Things happen very quickly. In Second Life, I think we've seen that. People have sometimes said that Second Life steps through these periods of human history, right. where it's initially kind of tribalism, and then you get feudalism, you know, and we move through the stages of human experience as people kind of test the waters in here. So I think there will probably be some big discontinuous changes. I, you know, you got me. I, I, I can't hazard sort of... Uh, what the next ones will be, I think that this concept of very, very high degree of verisimilitude and resolution will, will create some profoundly different usage trends in here. You know, today this is kind of a playing around with AutoCAD kind of thing, you know, make my house and invite my friends over and play a little music. As the technology changes, it's very difficult to say what the experience will be. You know, you'll be able to drive a car much more easily. You can drive a car in Second Life today, but it's still really clunky. Now, Second Life, you described importantly, is one contiguous place. But the web also is increasingly, in a sense, one contiguous place. And, and how, does, how do you overlap with other stuff like eBay or, or uh, Google or uh, you name it? Well, 
I'm going to, I'll, I'm going to divert the answer for that a little bit because people always say, well, what's so different about Second Life is it's 3D. It's the web in 3D, the 3D web that's talked about a lot. Um, these guys are looking at me. That's great. Uh, 3D is very powerful for a lot of reasons that I love to talk about in terms of how our brains work and how our memories work. But 3D is not actually what's so different about Second Life. The idea of things that you do on the web being done in 3D. What is different about Second Life is this modality that you are never alone. When you are at a site, so to speak, you are there implicitly with all the other people who are there. And so you're able to turn to somebody, this sort of mystery science theater. You know, imagine the web. Imagine how fun a bad website would have been in the late 90s if you could have turned to the person next to you and said, this is the stupidest site I've ever seen, you know. <laughs> you know, if I see another blinking tag, I'll, you know, I'm going to kill myself. So th there's a, that's happening here because you're in here with your friends. You're in here standing with other people. And so I think, we, so, so, so the long answer is how does it relate to the web? I think the web is a more solipsistic and alone kind of a structure. It's bibliographic. Uh, and I think that what people are going to do is they're going to use environments like Second Life to kind of connect all that bibliography into community. And maybe that's what we're seeing with a lot of the sort of, you know, wide, strong, strong emergent use of the word community now on, on the web and around things like Second Life. Uh, well, that relates to a question from Jesse Cowan-Sharp, right here in the middle. Uh, when Second Life is just one of many virtual worlds, what thoughts, if any, is Linden Labs giving to interoperability and protocols or standards, given the role that yeah. they had in the, allowing the unbridled growth of the Internet? Um, first of all, we believe that uh, for this to go to where people want it to go, and there's abundant proof, you know, in the last few months at least, finally, that that's true. Uh, I think that Second Life's got to be an open set of protocol standards and code uh, for people to be able to extend it as rapidly as they want to. I don't actually think that there will be multiple dissimilar virtual worlds because the cost of establishing and maintaining identity in particular is quite high. So I think that there will be a tremendous sort of a power law behavior where there will be a lot of force that will cause these systems to interoperate so much that they'll be like the real world, you won't have a really strong concept of Italy doesn't give you a different body and you don't have a different name. When you go to Italy, you're still basically you. So I, I think that's what we're going to see with multiple virtual worlds. But they will be hosted by different people and perhaps the software will be written by different companies, not you know, just one like ours. A couple of questions on the you, know, the, the you behavior. One uh, I assume is common is do people have more than one avatar? Um, on average, I think people have like 1.25 avatars. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, people do, but they don't have very many, and that relates directly back to what I said earlier, which is a thing you have to see to believe, um, and that is that identity is such a strong thing that you create your identity in Second Life, and then you keep it. I, you, you don't, even though you can just, I, I didn't show you this, you know, I can just drag new clothes onto myself and just instantly put them on, you don't do it that much. So identity is a very strong thing. Gender, for example, is strongly uh, mapped. In, in other words, when you, when you meet a, a female avatar, it's more likely it's a, female, uh, it's a woman in real life. So, uh, and, and again, the difficulty is the subterfuge of playing a different gender is pretty hard in an environment this realistic. That's interesting. Uh, related question, are there private areas in Second Life? Yeah, you, you can make a private area in your basement today. You know, there are people that have clubs hidden underground. Uh, we've probably flown over a few of them already. Uh, yeah, there is a concept of privacy. I think we had, to, from a design perspective, we bias toward public space. 
But again, that was because we were trying to start this fire of viral emergence. And we were less respectful of people's desire for privacy. In the future, people can and will build more and more private spaces. And even this, you know, the, the intranet, if you will, of, of the world today, I think will be replicated. You know, there'll be places in Second Life that are like super secure. And the islands today are like that. I'm flying around on the mainland of Second Life and the islands are more, more privatized. Some of these questioners sound like uh, avatars to me. Someone named Bronwyn Zim. Is that there? Could be now. <laughs> uh, asks, do you think uh, playing Second Life can make people see the real world as more plastic? Does the creativity and empowerment carry over into the real world? This is kind of a Burning Man question. Did yeah, you come totally. back from Burning Man I Creative? Mean, I, I can only speak for, I, well, I mean, I, I, I can, on the one hand, I can speak for myself. There's a tremendous uh, sense of, of focusing on what's really real that you bring back to the real world when you're in Second Life. There's this demand for plasticity. I mean, everybody that uses Second Life a lot has tried to reach out and zoom in on somebody, you know, like, <laughs> and you're like, God darn it, you know, I can't do it. Uh, so there's a, there's a tremendous desire to modify the environment once you've given, been given such a power to do that. But I think that uh, what it, it definitely brings back to the real world is a sensibility about the value of things. I mean, I think that the Second Life experience overall is one where Creativity and community, really that's what there is. I was just talking to a woman on Second Life last night who was saying that she was driving by in the real world. She, she's used Second Life a lot, she, but, but has only been using it for a couple months. And she said, I've been driving by some McMansions, was what she said. You know, and it's all there. And you know, she was saying, they really strike me as being shallow now. Because I'm seeing people just building this stuff all day in Second Life. And I realize, well, that's kind of fun, but it doesn't really mean all that much. So I, I think that's one of the very powerful reasons why this stuff's going to grow and, and what it's going to do to us. It's interesting that real estate is, a, is, is sort of the fundamental resource here. Food is not an issue. Energy is not an issue. Right. A lot of things that uh, you can sort of drop when you go into this world. What's going on? I'm just looking at this strange little globe here, but I think there's like a naked picture in it or something, so I'm, I'll fly by. <laughs> could create its own new list of questions there, couldn't it? And indeed, uh, I'm getting questions about when are we going to get smell, touch, taste. We were talking about force feedback earlier. Is touch coming? Yeah. Uh, oh, boy, this spook house right here is so great. This was one of the original money-making things. It was built by this guy named Sinatra Cartier. It was just the coolest. I can't believe I'm seeing it. It's like a piece of history. It's been around for years. Um, it's really quite scary, too. You get on that little ride there. You have to pay to get into it. You have to pay like a linden dollar, a very small amount of money to take the ride, and it'll, it's really pretty scary. He did it around Halloween. Well, we end with that when we get to that. But uh, uh, what was the question? I yeah, what did we say? I forgot it too. I'm, I totally redirected us. Uh, oh, touch. smell and touch and taste. So interfaces. You know, I think that the we worked as a company. We worked on interface technology for about the first nine months. We built some really interesting interface stuff that that was, uh, you know, I had been interested in for years. When we got that kind of working, we had also been doing some basic, you know, let there be light kind of stuff with multiple simulators and water and objects and stuff. And we just quickly realized, you know, the challenge of the, the, the design and technology challenge and even social challenge of building the world that we're all going to go into, that's the big problem. And so we said, we got we to gotta focus on that problem first, and then we'll come back to this interface stuff. But, you know, there is interesting work being done in interface technology. There are 3D mice now, for example, that are extremely impressive. There's uh, some interesting work being done on that. You know, there's, there's a lot of good stuff that's happening. Uh, 
again, the early technology in the 80s and 90s for that just wasn't ready yet. Fundamentally, you know, both sensor and uh, computing technology wasn't fast enough to do it. But there's a lot of stuff coming. So I, I think that part of our strategy with Second Life will be to open up, like, the interface so that people can extend it with, with gadgetry that extends the modality of the interface. And, yeah, well, there's a bunch of people waiting to do that in Second Life as, it, as, as these new interfaces come out. Imagine being able to grab something like I was grabbing that object on the island, you know, and, and grab it in the normal way, how, how compelling that would be. That's going to be something we'll be able to do in, the, in another year or two. Uh, let's wrap it up in demo mode. Do you want to take us into this, uh, this book house? house here well, we or something else? Well, I, boy, I don't you know. Something else. There's another 10 million things. Let, let's see if we can uh, see. Sit down here, if I remember correctly. And then you, you go in a mouse look, meaning you look through your eyes. You know, let's see, what is it? Say, stand in front of the car, sit down, mouse click this sign, and pay it a dollar, and then type spooky. I'm going to pay a dollar here. Okay. You have 60 seconds to say spooky. And watch this. Do we we got to have the audio? Or did I I turned it on. So it's just like an amusement ride. I can look around, see a little car. what you get for one linden dollar <laughs> about a third of a cent right yeah. it's moving us around in this in this house incredibly strange way to end the, the evening <laughs> anybody scared anyone in the right environment, that can be pretty scary the first time you see it. <laughs> I get the feeling that people have gone home at the carnival, you know? Nothing's happening and you wonder why. This is one of those, like, psychology tests. How long will we sit here? <laughs> There we go. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> I got it. I, I could. I could go. We could go on and on, but why don't we wrap it up there? Give them time. Thank you very much indeed. Great. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.